This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello, I'm Matt Kane, and welcome to Sunday Roast on Virgin Radio Pride. The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane. Virgin Radio Pride. And joining me on today's show are two diamonds of guests. First up, we've got Paul Brand. He's the UK editor of ITV News, and that's one of the biggest jobs in broadcast news. He was recently named Political Journalist of the year at the British Journalism Awards and he's a patron of charity just like us and on top of all that along with his husband he's just become a dad. Now Paul and I are going to be joined by Jodie Lancet Grant. She's a writer whose work has appeared in The Independent, The Times and The Telegraph and she's the author of The Pirate Mums. That's a new picture book featuring a family with two mums. It's been described by The Guardian as a rainbow-hued riot. And this is what we're going to be discussing, speaking of riots. First up, as representation of LGBTQ plus people and our lives increases across the media and arts, is it still lagging behind in content aimed at children? Then, with the American tradition of Pride Month now joining our own LGBT History Month, several days of visibility or awareness, plus various physical Pride events taking place throughout the year all around the UK, are our Pride events and initiatives becoming a bit confusing? Do they need streamlining so that they have maximum impact? Then we'll be tackling an evergreen subject that always gets passionate responses. Is there still a place for kink and fetish enthusiasts in pride parades? And finally, for a bit of light relief, with Love Island back on our screens, as promised, we'll be chatting about reality TV and finding out what our panellists think about it. All that's coming up. The Sunday Roast with Matt Kane. Virgin Radio Pride. Hello to my guests, Paul Brand and Jodie Lancet Grant. How are you guys today? Doing really well, thanks, Matt. Really good, thanks, Matt. Really happy to be here. Really good to have you. I can see that Jodie is chomping at the bit to talk about our first subject. We're going to get straight down to it. It's one of your pet subjects, Jodie. We're going to be talking about children's books. Basically, we all know that LGBTQ plus representation is getting better across the media and the arts. But what I want to talk about is, is it still lagging behind in content that's specifically aimed at children? And then I'd love to talk about why this is important and what we think are the possible consequences of it lagging behind. What do you reckon, Jodie? Why don't you jump straight in and tell us what you think? Well, I think what's been really nice is that this year there's been, I was going to say, an explosion of publication in this area, but it's actually only kind of three or four books because before that there was really very little. Um, I wrote my book, The Pirate Mums, because a few years ago, my little girls, when they were about three, they realised that our family with two mums was maybe a bit different to other people and I'm a real books person so the first thing I did was think oh well this will be fine I'll go and get some books that show our family setup 
But when I looked, there was just really not very much choice. And what there was was quite old fashioned and no shade on those books. The writers and illustrators who did that 20 years ago have done something amazing. But publishers hadn't really kept up and you don't you hadn't you didn't really see vibrant, funny, cool adventures that featured families with two mums or two dads or any sort of LGBTQ plus content, which is what gave me the idea to try and write mine. And it. It's important for so many reasons. It's important for kids from families like mine to show that they're the kinds of people worth writing stories about and to make them therefore interested in reading because they see themselves on the pages. But it's also so important for kids of straight parents as well so that they can see that all different sorts of families exist because there's no better way to teach people things like that than through stories. Well, I have to say, so I'm not a parent, but I do have five nephews and a niece and I've gone through this wanting to get um, books for them, storybooks when they're little books that you read to them and picture books. Um, that reflect my life. And the only two I could find were um, And Tango Makes Three, about the gay penguins. Um, Both of my guests are nodding. Uh, The gay penguins in New York Zoo, I think. And more recently, there's been Julian is a Mermaid. I'm going to bring Paul in because, as I said in your introduction, I'm going to be chatting to you about this later. You've recently become a dad. Congratulations. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. (laughs) Very tired. Thank you. (laughs) So, yeah. So, how do you feel about this? Presumably, I mean, I know it's a bit early to start looking at uh, books to read him, but presumably you've started thinking about it. Yeah, and it's really interesting seeing the response you get when you have a baby, actually, because lots of people want to give you books, which is absolutely lovely. And we've had all sorts of brilliant, brilliant books sent to us by family and friends. Um, But no one so far that have actually had a straight character. And we received a book from my cousin, who is quite mindful of these things. And she she sent us a, a book, I can't remember the name of it now, but it's about a fish. And the fish happens to be a mum. And she was like, oh, God damn it, I didn't think of that when I, when, I, when I sent the book. So she's actually gone through the book and scrubbed out mum and written dad and drawn a beard on the fish. Uh, so that our son, when we are when he's old enough to understand it, will at least see his setup reflected back to him. But yeah, there are very few books. And what I loved about Jodie's book, and I am unashamedly plugging it here because it is brilliant, <laughs> is that actually the fact that they're two mums, the, the, the two um, parental, parental characters and mums, is completely incidental to the story and you start out reading it uh, and, the, and the little boy's a bit embarrassed of his parents and you think oh, okay this is going to be a book about how having two mums can be a bit tricky and you might get bullied at school and actually what he's really embarrassed about is that the two mums are pirates and that is the story is that they're far too piratey for his liking and it's all really embarrassing and I just think that is such a brilliant way of weaving in same-sex relationships into a tale and and that's where we're winning I think is when when those relationships are incidental to the storyline and we're not making a statement we're just gently dripping in yes other families exist well funny enough when you were saying that i was thinking of um the netflix series sex education which isn't aimed at kids but maybe young adults and there's the lesbian mums who are brilliant and their lesbianism is their brilliant characters their lesbianism is not so much incidental but it's not the key factor in their characterization what is the fact that um one of them is a pushy mom who wanted to be a swimmer and she pushes her son into swimming so she can live out her dream vicariously through him that's the key um factor in understanding her character that's brilliant like you say that the lesbianism is secondary 
absolutely absolutely and i just think that's so important and the best books out there that i've seen are are like i say where they where that storyline has been incidental they're just a couple of same-sex parents uh, and the children kind of leave through that book and, and and not feel as though they're being educated about same-sex relationships they're just being shown the world oh absolutely and jody actually when paul was talking about the um story of his cousin drawing on the beard um, nobody is saying every book has to have a gay character or lesbian or trans character in it. What we're saying is his cousin wouldn't have to do that if there were several choices, some of which reflected the family life he's going to have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it there, there are some lovely books that have come out recently. There's a wonderful one called My Daddies, which you'll have to get, which is about um, a little girl with two daddies who tell wonderful stories and they, they bring her into this wonderful world of imagination. And there's Nen and the Lonely Fisherman, which is a retelling of The Little Mermaid, with a, but, with, but with, with two men. And that's lovely too. But I totally agree. It's about having that choice so that you can choose it. And what I found is that a lot of my straight friends have loved the Pirate Mums because they want want to show their children all different kinds of families in the world and you mentioned sex education when I saw those those mums I found it absolutely electrifying to see a gay couple where they were just in the story it was nothing to do with he didn't have any issues with his mums they didn't have any issues they didn't have to come out it was just there and there's no reason in the modern day and age that that shouldn't be there so I think culture does have a bit of catching up to do but I think it's encouraging that it is starting to do that i think that's so right sorry to to jump in here matt but it's not just about supply of these books but it's about demand for the books too and i think what i would love to see is straight people buying them for their own kids you know it's not just about gay families reading books with gay characters to their children or lgbt plus characters to their children we've got to have straight families reading those books too because ultimately we live in the same world all together and we're not siloed into these different sort of family structures we're all mixing together and we want every child to understand that families come in all shapes and sizes except it's interesting that jody said culture needs to catch up because i'd love to know what you think about which comes first because there's plenty of examples of culture the narrative arts the media leading public opinion and attitudes and what we're talking about here is it needs to catch up to reflect the public opinion and attitudes and the culture we've already got i think a lot of this is to do um with the pub with publishing and the publishing industry and in my day job I work in publishing so I think I can say that I think publishing has been quite conservative and has often when a publisher is acquiring a book they're seeing oh what what other books are there like this that have worked and that people have bought so it can be quite difficult for a publisher to take a risk and say oh well actually just because there hasn't been a book like this doesn't mean that one can't work whereas now they're starting to wake up to that a a little bit so I do think especially when it comes to to children's books that's been a bit of an issue that I think is changing hopefully. Well I completely agree from my experience Mm. in publishing Um, but Paul you're primarily a TV man do you think other art forms like for example TV are better Um, I know this is early days for your consumption of um, content aimed at little children, but is children's telly, are children's films, are they better, do you think, Paul? I mean, as you say, it's early days for me. I haven't quite yet (laughs) (laughs) tapped into Peppa Pig and all the rest of it. But, um, you know, I'd hope so. I'd hope so when I get to that stage. But I think if we're looking more broadly at at culture, um, I think certainly... There have been some absolutely outstanding TV shows lately. I mean, It's a Sin is such an obvious one to single out, but there really have been some huge breakthrough shows lately. 
which I think have proven that television does lead the way. And there's yeah, no more, yeah. you know, I'm, I don't mean to do, to do down two authors here, but I, I genuinely believe that television is one of the, the most powerful mediums out there. Mm. And I think shows like that just absolutely smash through barriers. And the number of my straight friends who said to me this year, I had no idea the sheer terror of HIV and AIDS in your community. And you think we lived through that, Matt, you know, know. particularly as as gay men, you know, every new relationship was a trip to the STD clinic and a test. Every every time you fell in love, you were terrified that that relationship was going to kill you. Oh, I know. And for straight people to have no idea... Well, I have to say, it's interesting you getting exercised here because I actually, I when people said to me, I had no idea that happened, part of me thought, why not? You were there. You obviously just weren't. I mean, at the, at the time, yeah, we did live through it. Um, well, all three of us lived through it. And um, actually, um, straight people, the mainstream, was not as open to hearing our stories and to engaging with our lives in the way that they are now. Would you agree? Yeah, I had this conversation about It's a Sin literally with my parents last night with my dad because uh, he had, didn't watch it when it first came out and just watched it this week and was saying how, how brilliant he thought it was and he was in his kind of late 20s early 30s in the early 80s and I said to him so but you were there did you not know this was happening and he said it literally did not cross his life at all he said he saw the adverts with the tombstones and thought it was scary but he didn't know a single gay person and it was just not something that was in any way relevant whereas I I would think that now I think you're right there are less barriers things are less hidden and uh, the LGBTQ plus community is more in the mainstream so I don't know if that would happen I th- now but I, I did think, th- think what he his separation from it was really interesting and I think the the reason why it's a sin really struck a chord this year particularly was because of the parallels with the COVID-19 mm, yes, pandemic yeah, and you look at the way that HIV AIDS was, was treated in the 80s uh, as a far more deadly disease actually than COVID-19 and yet people were less aware of it than they are of COVID-19. Um, absolutely. But right, what I want to do is I want to try and steer us back on to um, the idea of children's books and representation. But actually, I want to bring... I want to keep It's a Sin in there because I always remember Section 28 in 1986, I think it was. It was the, the law that was brought in by the government to stop local councils and education authorities promoting, in inverted commas, homosexual lifestyles to impressionable children and part of the reason um, this was brought in was the hysteria around HIV AIDS in the middle of the crisis which it's just in looked at and the homophobia this unleashed and the idea that gay men in particular um, were a danger to children and um, we were we were sexual predators we were spreading disease people often couldn't tell the difference between um, gay men and paedophiles and there was the idea that we were going to convert or corrupt children I just wonder whether either of you have um, any thoughts on section 28 because also just to keep it on the topic this came about in response not just to the hiv aids crisis but a book that went into school libraries called jenny lives with eric and martin and it was all about a diverse um family with two gay dads actually and some people became incensed that this was being peddled to our children what do you think paul yeah i just think that section 28 was you know, it's such a difficult thing for lots of 
children who grew up in the in the 90s and, and early 2000s I mean I remember coming out when I was 15 16 to my close friends and we went out on a, on a night out in Cardiff slightly prematurely for our age uh, <laughs> and we bumped into my maths teacher and he was like oh god you're in this bar which was a gay bar uh, and I was like oh god I'm in this bar with you this is really really embarrassing so all credit to him he said look I'm gay uh, I can't talk to you about it because of section 28 and that was probably the first kind of role model I'd met, actually, gay role model that I'd met in life. And I could not have a conversation with him. I couldn't speak to him and say, I'm gay, I'm confused, I'm worried about it, you know, sir, can you help me? Because the answer was no. He just absolutely couldn't talk to me about it. And I think the impact of Section 28 was just so far-reaching um, that, you know, it just can't be underestimated. Oh, I completely agree. And I think it's outrageous that you're... Um, education and your journey towards self-understanding as a gay man was actually cut off by the law. You know, it's unbelievable. Jodie, why do you think um, this horrendous law that thankfully has now been repealed, um, although not till 2003, I think, um, why do you think this law was passed in response to the outrage around an LGBTQ plus friendly book being in a school in some school libraries well i think it was the the result of literally centuries of homophobia and uh, probably the aids panic as well but i think that it is so incredibly damaging it feels absolutely flabbergasting to me that my book 20 years ago when i was at school would have been illegal to have mm. in a school. It just seems absolutely crazy. And I, I was born in 1980, so I, my whole school career was all through Section 28. But because it was so complete, you didn't know what you were missing. You didn't know what gay literature you weren't reading or you weren't seeing or what material wasn't there because it was so completely absent. And I think... I've been so heartened by the response to my book from teachers who are desperate for content like this to use in the classroom. But because 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 of the hangover of Section 28, there isn't much there for them to use now in the classroom, thankfully teachers are supposed to be talking about inclusive families and representing all different kinds of families but there aren't loads of resources that help them do that because as I say it's coming off the back of this centuries of homophobia that in section 28 was clarified and put into actual law which seems crazy. Is there actually a legal obligation for schools to, to stock books like yours? I, I'm, I'd be on shaky ground there but I do know that in the curriculum they are required to talk about families in an inclusive way and show different family groups whether it's someone living with a grandparent or two dads or two mums and I believe that came in this September mm. but um, yeah, I, yeah you need to ask a teacher about that for sure or, or, or a journalist in fact funnily enough uh, without sort of bigging myself up here I broke the story that they were changing the sex education um, agenda a couple of years ago and you're absolutely right Jodie it's now part of the curriculum that you have to talk about um, sex and relationships right from primary school well not necessarily sex in primary school but relationships all the way through from primary school to secondary school in all schools across the board. And that does include inclusive teaching about different uh, types of families. You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. We are talking about LGBTQ plus representation in children's books. And this has brought us on to discussing how um, same-sex relationships are taught in schools. 
Paul, you're an expert. You've covered the subject, particularly when there were the protests outside the school, schools in the plural, I think, in Birmingham. Um, how does it feel to you as a gay man who possibly was thinking about becoming a parent at the time to be covering stories where people are protesting how outrageous it is that our lives are being taught or just told to children that we exist? I think as a journalist, particularly as a TV journalist, when you've got to be impartial, to be honest, you kind of just put on your rhino skin and go into every situation, not really feeling emotionally connected to a story because you're not there to have a personal opinion. You're there to try and explain or to tell both sides of a story. And for me, actually, the, the issue with the protests outside schools and LGBT plus inclusive education on the curriculum there was actually a huge amount of misunderstanding there and actually the best thing I could do as a journalist was just to explain the facts and I think a lot of parents were were terrified that maybe this was the curriculum teaching sex to children in primary schools and that really wasn't what it was about it was about relationships and families and just sort of you know gently talking about the kind of books that, that Jodie writes where incidentally there might be a couple of uh, mums or a couple of dads and it really was as gentle as that and I think unfortunately like so many of the things these days that argument got very heated very polarized and very divisive and when you looked at what they were really arguing over there was quite a lot of common ground there um and thankfully a lot of the heat has now been taken out of that discussion okay so jodia how did that make you feel as a parent you were already a par your daughters are six yep. so you were a parent at the time how did you feel when you saw that kind of coverage on the news and you're from a um a same-sex family yeah, I was absolutely horrible and it made me feel worried and scared. Um, but I tried to ignore it and I tried to think, well, maybe where I live in London, that won't happen. Um, but and we haven't had any protests, but I did go to the, to the school that my daughters go to for a workshop because they invited all parents to come on a workshop where they could explain what this curriculum was going to be. And I think that's for exactly the reasons that Paul says, because there is understanding. And also because parents do have the option to pull their children out of those lessons. And the school very much wants to discourage them from doing that because, as the teacher said in the session, the children are going to talk about it. Surely you would rather your child hears about it from a professional than from a five-year-old who has heard it in the classroom and maybe not understood it because it's part of a process of lessons. And I went along to that workshop, which was uh, optional, because I wanted to be sure that the way they were talking about families was inclusive, which it absolutely was. But there was a loud minority of parents in that workshop who did object to it and who did say, why are we teaching our children this this is very confusing for my child they always say confusing i know i have to say i said well maybe it's your job to uh explain it to them and if you're not up to that maybe you need to ask somebody else to do it but it was a minority but it was a vocal minority um and i really think that they well i don't know this but i strongly suspect that they didn't know or wouldn't have thought that actually there were children at the school that have two mums or have two dads. And so a lot of what they were saying is, why is this relevant to children? They're six. They're not thinking about their sexuality yet. I mean, that's another conversation. But um, they thought it wasn't relevant then. And then when myself and another couple of uh, mums spoke up and said, well, actually, there are children in your child's class that have got two mums and two dads I think they were a bit surprised I think they thought oh this is something that happens in TV this is something that happens in America this isn't something that happens in Walthamstow where we live um, it's and, terrible isn't it because yeah. once again what you've got is an example of 
the oppressed having to teach the oppressor. Yeah, exactly. And they felt, I think, that they were being oppressed because they felt like some of their cultural values were being stamped on. So it is a really thorny thorny issue yeah. but I think that our school's been really really wonderful and we feel very supportive about it and it's so interesting that you say that you know parents are worried about the kids being confused I actually think that in most cases the kids are much less confused than the adults are you know I do a lot of work with a charity called Just Like Us which is a fantastic charity that goes into schools and 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 supports teachers to kind of teach LGBT inclusive inclusivity and I remember having a conversation with the charity a couple of years ago around what we would say around trans, um, because obviously that's quite a complex topic. And when you're talking to children about it, you want to explain it as, as kind of simply as you can. And we found that the children were far more understanding of, of, of trans than, than any adults that you've come across in society. They talk about it loads at school, far more than we do uh, as adults, I think. Um, I'll tell you what, I've got a question for you. Jodie was talking about um, parents having a choice of pulling out often pulling their children out of this LGBTQ plus inclusive relationships education. Often the loophole exists for people with religious beliefs that um, tell them that our lives are morally wrong. Do you think, um, how do you feel as a gay parent now? Do you think people, regardless of the religious thing actually, do you think anybody should have the, the right to take their parents out? I mean, I sometimes think, look, you get parents who are racist, and obviously that's horrendous, but is it their right to pass on their racism to their child? Um, what do you think about these loopholes? If a, if a parent is homophobic, should they be able to pass that on, do you think? The difficulty with all of this is that we're kind of talking about a trade-off of freedoms here because you've got the freedom of religion, haven't you, ultimately? And as much as we might find it difficult, there are religious texts that talk about homosexuality and not all of them are particularly complimentary about it. And, you know, some people in society follow those texts by what they believe to be the letter and they feel very strongly about it. And then you've got the trade-off with sexual freedoms and our freedom to be who we are. Um, and that runs through so many topics at the moment. It runs through gay conversion therapy, for example, which is another story that I've done a lot of work on the past few years you know do you tell people in churches and and mosques that they're not allowed to tell people it's wrong to be gay I mean it's a really really thorny issue and really difficult and I'm going to sit on the fence a little bit here Matt because <laughs> it comes quite close to to some of my reporting on these issues and I, and I do like to try and remain as understanding as impartial as I can but it's a really really difficult one it's a really difficult one and and, and the sad thing for teachers is they're often left trying to police it Yes, absolutely. But actually, that brings me back to something Jodie said previously, which is if these parents aren't going to teach children certain values, which we are now told are core British values, um, is it up to somebody else to teach them? Consequently, is it up to the teachers and the schools to have things like children's picture books that gently introduce um, themes without, you know, do you think these should be a legal requirement almost? I don't know if I think they should be a legal requirement. I think the curriculum is right that it is inclusive in this way. I certainly wouldn't want to say that parents don't have the right to take their children out of school, but equally, I mean, I don't think it's a great thing. I obviously don't think it's a great thing to be doing for parents to be doing that for whatever reason, whether it's objecting to LGBTQ plus content or whether it's objecting to the children learning about the different parts of the body, which was actually just as much a controversial subject in that particular workshop as the LGBTQ plus content there was lots of different areas to it um so i think yeah i think it's about personal freedom but i think and i'm sure we'll get onto this a little bit later in some of our later conversations i think 
when one person's freedom starts impeding another's is where you start to get the difficulties. It's so difficult, isn't it? But we've also got, we've talked about um, children growing up with queer parents because that reflects both of your situations, but there's also the children who are themselves starting to think they may be attracted to the same sex, which I did from a very early age. Yeah. And actually, you're not going to see... Um, children like that really reflect you know it's you think actually you know if you look at the parents it's probably easier to reflect those relationships through the parents lives in books than it is the kids absolutely and one some of the feedback that i've had on the pirate mums has that i've found the most moving has been from queer people who have said that when they were growing up they just assumed if they're kind of my age or older especially that having getting married and having children would just is not an avenue that was open to them because they'd never seen it and because they just assumed it wasn't something that they that they could have whereas they've said that if they had seen books like these when they were younger they wouldn't have closed that off and I think that's such an important thing and I'm certainly not saying that everybody needs to go down a route that we've previously thought of perhaps as being heteronormative but there should be an option that if people want to do that they know that in the modern world they can Okay, I've got a question for you. I completely agree with what you're saying. When I grew up, it never occurred to me I'd ever have children. And I kind of got a bit too long in the tooth by the time I finally met my other half to start contemplating Never it. too old. <laughs> never too old. Well, what I want to know from you, Jodie, is obviously you're further down the line on this journey than Paul is. Some of the things you've said have made me think... Flipping out, you really have to be politically aware, switched on, and almost an activist in order to be a same-sex parent. Is this something you could expand on for Paul's benefit? <laughs> oh, you know what? I actually, I actually really don't think that. I don't think you do need to be an oh, activist. I don't think you do need to be switched on. I think you just need to just go ahead and do it, and make sure that you're respecting other people and that you're standing up to people when they if if they disrespect you i've joined various over the last couple of years various lgbtq plus parenting groups on facebook I, i've never really been a kind of parenting group joiner but i have over the last couple of years and i've been so impressed by just all these just people who are not activists are not like trying to change the world they're just families who happen to be two mums or two dads and I think that that is just so wonderful I want to do things like come on the radio and talk about this and write books about it because I feel there is campaigning that needs to be done but I definitely don't think that needs to be a requirement but if visibility is so important um you know, is just the very act of doing it not in itself a political move? Yeah, I think it probably, I think it probably is. But I don't think you de if you don't feel comfortable to go and campaign, I don't feel like there should be any pressure to. Paul, have you encountered any resistance to the idea of being a same-sex parent, or are you worried about any? And I don't know, going on holiday as a family, or uh, any of these things. It's, it, to be honest, I, in, in real life, in my interactions with people day to day, I have not come across a single bad reaction. And I think all of us have to focus on what matters, which is what your family and your friends think of you. And I have had, and both of us, my, my husband and I, have, have had so much support from our family. They could not be more excited to have a grandchild and a, and a nephew in their lives. Um, and my friends and my work colleagues are exactly the same too. We've had so, so, so much love. 
the only things that I've kind of come across that have been a bit tricky have been practical things. And actually, uh, what I think is almost more difficult about being a gay dad is not the gay bit, but the dad bit. <laughs> because so much of parenting is oriented towards mums. And I think uh. I've had a real insight, actually, into the challenges that, that particularly straight women face in the fact that all of the responsibility is loaded onto women. So we did NCT classes, for example. I'll probably get into trouble for saying this. They'll probably come after me. But, you know, a lot of that was about, you know, all the things a mum needs to get ready for and the dad needs to be there with a couple of tea and rubbing her back and that was literally the dad's role <laughs> and you just think the whole of parenting is set up to be all about the mum and and so that's been the hardest part is you know when, when our when our son was born we had to do things like getting registered at the gp and they want the mother's address and you say well what about the father's address no no no, it needs to be the mother's address we need proof of the mother's address and so all you know and i, I don't i don't begrudge that in the slightest in, in the sense that you know mums are absolutely brilliant i've got one myself i love it to bits <laughs> but my goodness, what a burden for women that they carry through life, that they, right from the word go, they have to do all of the parenting. And, and, it's, and it's rubbish for dads and it's rubbish for mums. Right, I tell you what, I was going to wind up the discussion by saying, would greater representation of same-sex parents or LGBTQ plus families in children's books and other art forms be a way of combating some of the issues we've talked about? But actually, I'm still going to ask the question because what Paul's just said it would even work on that front, actually, by showing that there can be two men or two women in a family. Um, we, you know, we've not specifically addressed the um, question, why do we need this? But we've kind of answered it, haven't we, Jodie? We, you know, if we have um, LGBTQ plus families in books, films, TV shows, all of these problems kind of are just dialed down and fared away. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's really, really true. The more representation we have of different kinds of families, the less stereotyping there will be, the less things, exactly as you say, of unfair loading of the different kinds of work you do as a parent. Something that my wife and I feel that we fall outside of, which is a really lovely thing for us because there aren't any gender roles in our marriage. So we both kind of muck in and do it equally. And I've seen so many of my straight friends where that's not really been the case. But really, I think the reason we need this representation is so that kids like our children see themselves in the pages of stories, understand that they're worth telling stories about, and that everybody can understand that this is a normal part of life and that this is uh, these families are just as valid as any other family. What do you reckon, Paul? Is there anything we can do, do you think, to improve the situation or give the publishing industry a nod? A nod? Nudge. Nudge. Is it just... Um, gently nudging all our straight friends to buy these kind of books for their kids. Yeah, I think just every time you get invited to a christening or a baby shower, buy them a book that has an LGBT character in it. It's just as simple as that. I mean, I'm obviously very, very behind that as a strategy. I think that would be great. Pirate Mums is definitely a good place to start. We're going to be pausing our debates now to have a little chat with Paul Brand. And obviously we've covered the fact that you are a dad. Congratulations again. How old is your son? Uh, three weeks old. <gasps> three weeks old. Yeah, that's that explains the eye bags right now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, his name is. You've put on social media. You've announced his name, Thomas. Thomas, exactly. Well done. Where does that name come from? It's Welsh for Thomas. Oh, simple as that. Yeah, yeah. Because really I'm from Wales, simple. and I, um, we really wanted him to have a Welsh name. Yeah. Fantastic. Is he going to be a Tom? 
he can be. I mean, that's part of the appeal of the name is that if he gets a bit fed up of the the spelling and the Welsh angle, then he can drop down to Tom when he's older um, and be relieved of that burden. <laughs> and how about you're on paternity leave at the moment? You're going back to work next week. Mm. You've obviously got a very demanding job. All of our listeners will be used to seeing you covering some of the stories you've already talked about today. How do you feel about going back and juggling the two roles? I mean, it is daunting, but I'm really excited to go back. I absolutely love my job and I work in a really, really fantastic newsroom that is super inclusive, super supportive. And I think I said earlier, I've had so much support from work colleagues since I've been on paternity leave. So, look, I'm sure it's going to be tiring. I'm going to have to get used to the new routine. But, you know, I'm, I'm quite excited for the juggle. And there's lo- been lots of news stories going on while you've been on paternity leave. Are there any in particular that on your desk, on your patch, you're looking forward to getting your teeth into? Yeah, well, last year I was covering the crisis in care homes during the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's been quite a lot of discussion since I've been off about reforming the social care sector. So when I get back, we're getting straight into that topic to look at how we can improve care homes for everyone. Um, and also, you know, I was quite gutted to miss out on the Matt Hancock story while I was off because that was such a cracker, <laughs> such a cracking story. It's so interesting to me because when I used to work in a newsroom, also for ITN, but for Channel 4 News, I absolutely loved it. But I was um, very surprised by how kind of competitive and um, I, I don't really want to say straight male but it's kind of a macho culture everybody's got to fight for their stories and to get their stories on and just seeing that glint come in your eye then when you talked about missing out on a big story that's kind of how newsrooms work isn't it it is, yeah, and it can. It, there are newsrooms that that can be macho. Thankfully, ITV News, as I say, is is really inclusive. Um, and I think in the past few years, across the whole of our industry, there's just been much more of an understanding that there isn't just one way to be a journalist. You know, you don't just have to be this big, straight, macho man, elbowing everyone out of the way, chasing the ambulance to get that first shot of the murder scene or whatever. You know, there are other qualities. You know, there's empathy is is a really valuable quality as a journalist. Um, you know, a deep understanding of a topic. We, we, we're we far more interested now in specialists. So specialisms have really started to flourish in journalism, whether it's business journalism or political journalism. I think there's been far more, fo- for, for, more focus on specialisms. So I think those things are changing and it's not as macho as it used to be. OK, then. So here's a question for you. Um, do you think, even though I'm slightly, I slightly reductively dismissed newsrooms as quite macho, um, do you think your identity as a gay man has fed into your journalism and improved it and given you an edge that maybe some of your competitors don't have? Oh, it's getting deep now. This is my <laughs> Well, I, I often tell this story that when I when I first got into journalism, and, and I should really stress this is nobody that I work with at ITV News now, I was actually told that the first some of the first advice I had was to dumb down my sexuality on air because it would be a distraction. And this was somebody who was trying to help me. They weren't to, being to dumb it down, to or dumb to it, play down. it down, to, to, to both to, to play it down, to dumb it down, to hide it, to to erase it essentially from my identity as a reporter. Because you know, if that suit was a little bit you know oh, too well cut or that tie was a little bit jazzy, people would be distracted from my reporting because they'd be too busy thinking about how I was gay. Um, and that was the worst advice I think I've ever had because it really it really affected my first few years in journalism because I was quite uptight and I, I was always really anxious about picking the plainest blue suit and, and not picking the stories that might have brought out any of my kind of gay qualities if those are things that exist. Um, so I was trying so hard to be that kind of straight male reporter just like everyone else. 
and it was only a few years ago where when I I kind of let go of that that I think I really began to enjoy my work and to hit my stride and to not be afraid to suggest LGBT stories I mean I'm quite conscious that I don't want to be the LGBT correspondent I think straight people can do LGBT stories too it doesn't always have to be a gay man who does every LGBT story um but I'm really proud of the of the topics that I thought were interesting, e.g. E- conversion therapy, that I brought into ITV News, uh, and and they were great at championing them. It's interesting, isn't it? There's it strikes me that there's m- much more of an understanding of the importance of being yourself across the board in um, all kinds of different professions and industries now than there used to be. I mean, you hear like bankers for example you know industries that were considered very macho people saying you can only flourish when you're comfortable and relaxed in who you are and you're not pretending to be someone else or holding playing down certain elements of who you are or holding yourself in it's so true it's so true and i think companies are starting to realize that you know that you're going to get the best out of your staff if they're comfortable if they can be themselves if they can suggest those ideas that maybe they're a little bit you know scared of suggesting um that's what that's the sweet spot i think is where everyone in a newsroom or whatever organization it is feels that they can just be themselves and bring their full selves to work and what would you say if 20 years from now your son tells you he wants to be a broadcast journalist (laughs) i'd say can we just have a little look at the industries where there is high demand (laughs) what about computer programming or whatever it is going to be in 20 years time no i mean i would i've i have loved my career in broadcast journalism i would never steer him away from it but um, but yeah, I would certainly encourage him to have a good hard think about maybe some industries that's a little easier to get into. <laughs> the Sunday Roast with Matt Kane, Virgin Radio Pride. My brilliant panel, Paul Brand and Jodie Lancet Grant, are still here. We're now going to be talking about Pride. As we've just come out of Pride Month, I want to look at all the different celebrations we have now. So in this country, for a long time, we've had LGBT History Month and Pride events spaced out throughout the year so that people can go to lots of them. In America, on the other hand, every town and city celebrates Pride on the last Sunday of June to commemorate the anniversary of the Stonewall riots that started the gay liberation movement. And the month of June leads up to this. This is where Pride Month comes from. But what's happening now is that this is becoming increasingly prominent here in the UK. I'm sure you've all seen retail and store promotions, corporate awareness drives, initiatives at work to mark Pride Month. And when you add on to this, Ida Hobbit, lesbian, asexual, agenda, pansexual, intersex visibility days, non-binary awareness week, trans awareness week, bisexual awareness week, national coming out day. And all of these events, all of them are brilliant, but they all make a big impact digitally. So the question is, is it becoming, is it still working or does Pride need streamlining to have maximum impact? I am now going to bring in um, a new panellist for us today, who is Professor Sue Sanders. She's Emeritus Professor of the Harvey Milk Institute. She's the Chair of Schools Out UK and the founder of LGBT History Month, a brilliant charity of which I should declare an interest. I am a patron. And back to Sue, all these achievements are only the tip of her iceberg. She's been an LGBTQ plus rights activist and campaigner for over 40 years. Sue, welcome. Hello, Matt. <laughs> Lovely to hear from you. 
Now, tell us what's going on with all these Awareness Days, Pride, LGBT History Month. How has the landscape of events and initiatives changed over the 40 years you've been an activist? And what do you make of it? Oh, well, massively. I mean, the whole point of, of setting up LGBT History Month Back in 2005, we launched it in 2004, but it, the first one was 2005, was because we were invisible. And the whole point of, of having the month, and remember, I'm a, I was a teacher and still am, I suppose, and I co-founded it with Paul Patrick, who, who was a teacher as well. So our passion was to get LGBT issues visible in schools. So that's how we started it. We, we, we could see that Black History Month had some effect in schools. Um, and there was some work done around the issues, but frustratingly, frequently, they would look at American issues around black history rather than British, which was something which we both were very unhappy about. But we felt that if we had a, an LGBT history month, then it would actually give schools the chance to do some focusing on LGBT issues. And we had just come out of Section 28. Which, 15 years of hell. Which we talked about earlier, so our listeners will know exactly what's going on there or what did go on. Excellent. But can Good. you tell us, so we've got, you talked about the impact you were hoping to make with LGBT History Month. Do you worry now that with Pride Month, the American tradition of Pride Month, increasingly seeping, uh, seeping through here, I don't quite know what um, language to use, or just <laughs> taking hold in the public consciousness more that um, you may have less impact with LGBT History Month? Well, we may, but on the other hand, it's in February. It's at a time when things are rather miserable um, and it's also got a half term in it. So schools are very much focused on, on LGBT History Month and so are local authorities. I don't think there's a local authority that worth its salt that wouldn't do something for LGBT History Month, fly a flag, support local um, LGBT organizations that are having events. If you go onto the LGBT History Month website, LGBT History Month, LGBT, LGBT plus History Month .co .uk, there is plethora of information there. And I was just looking at the calendar. And if you look at the calendar for that month, it is chocker. Okay. We have people doing things the whole month. Yes, I know it's brilliant. Absolutely, it's brilliant. But the point is, you're getting a bit tongue-tied over the name. Somebody today or the other day messaged me on Twitter, an editor of a gay magazine, and he was talking about Pride History Month. With so ah. many things going on, do you think um, we are... Do you think there's too much It's being confusing? And what do you make of my opening little presentation to open up the discussion? Well, I, I think you're right. We've got lots of events, but each one of them do a different thing, Matt. Their yes. job is different. And I think Pride Month, and, and yes, it has somewhat taken over, but I think it came up very through through much the digital stuff. But in fact, when you look at Pride in this country, we have different Prides all over the country at different times. We don't do it on the same day like American does. And most of our Prides actually happen post-June. Um, and our grassroots organizations. I mean, where I am in Margate, we have a wonderful little pride, which is a grassroots event on the 14th of August this year. And it's not, no, hasn't got corporates in it. And I think that's, that's quite exciting. But I think when you look at the other days, like bisexual day or trans day, or Idaho, Idaho Hobbit is, is crucial because there we're looking at them. We're, we're looking and thinking about safety of LGBT plus people and, and thinking about the people who've been killed. 
So there's the, each one of them are doing a different thing. LGBT History Month is about celebration and about visibility. And it, it has the, the reason I'm tongue tied over it is because we've just changed our, our website address. So it used to be oh, simpler sorry, okay. to say. But but the, the, the website has oodles of resources there for schools specifically and for education and it's utilized and i think the effect of actually enabling youngsters to find out about the heritage of lgbt people is profoundly important i completely agree i'm going to bring in our panel now jody lancet grants can you keep track of all these different celebrations and their individual roles Absolutely. I think that there is definitely a place for all of these celebrations. I think the real risk would be if we went to a model like the States is that, you know, the media in particular would think, well, no, I'm not going to cover this. I'll wait till Pride. And there would only be one month of the year where I think you'd be able to really get any LGBTQ plus content in the media. I think that would be a real shame. I think Sue's totally right. Lots of the Pride events happen all around the country. And it's a bit different to America. We're such a much smaller country. You might want to go to Pride in Manchester and Pride in London and Pride in Margate. I love Margate Pride, by the way. I've been a couple of times. It's such a good event. Um, and I think that, that people want to do that. They want to go and celebrate with their friends that live in other places in a way that might be a little bit more difficult to do in the States. Obviously, it's difficult to do here at the moment as well, but in past and hopefully future years. And I think Sue's right as well that a lot of these days and these awareness weeks, they focus on different things and there is a risk as well that if you don't have them, everything becomes just one experience. Who is the person that is shouting the loudest? Is that the only experience that we get to hear about? Or actually, if they're separated out, you get some of the more, the smaller experiences of smaller parts of the community that are just as important. That's interesting, isn't it, Paul? Because um, we always talk about pride, in essence, is supposed to be diverse and inclusive. Every person we have on the show every week says that. But do you think ultimately what dominates is the subsection of our community who can shout the loudest? And there's always a danger with that, isn't there? And I think traditionally as gay men um, within our community, we've been very lucky. You know, we've, we really have um, been very lucky. Um, but I just think, you know, the more of these events, the better, personally. I'm sorry, there's not much of a debate going on here. But, um, <laughs> you know, just I had someone message me today on Twitter, actually, about Pride Month saying, oh, why does it have to be a whole month? I'm just sick of hearing about it. It's a whole month. And I felt like replying saying, well, come on, straight people get 11 months of the year. <laughs> we can have one, can't we? Um, and I just think the more events that there are like this to improve understanding, the better. And, and, and you know, I'm all for it. So this is interesting, Sue, because Paul's just said something that I've heard, you know, um, are we overdoing it and losing the goodwill? If, or are we in danger of overdoing it and losing the goodwill of straight people, or should I say mainstream society, whose support we need? Well, I think that's a very interesting thought. And But if you look at the, the calendar on the History Month website, and if you also look at Outing the Past, which is another festival that, that we work with, which is specifically history, we had 17 venues this February who wanted to have a day or a weekend showing LGBT history. And we had over 70 people offering us presentations on LGBT history. We have been starved of knowing where we've come from of knowing who our role models are, of knowing what has been gone before. We have been lied to by omission. So I think LGBT History Month has really filled a very important gap of enabling people to recognize who they are and where they've come from. 
and outing the past is specifically history, but the History Month itself, if you look at what people do in February, there is a plethora of exciting stuff, which isn't just history. There's there's theatre, there's quizzes, there's drag events. And I think it, it, when you look at what's happening in Pride and you look at what's happening in LGBT History Month, there is a subtlety of difference. And I think we need both. Okay, I want to bring in some listener comments. Rob on Twitter says, in answer to my question, do our events and initiatives need streamlining? He says, counterpoint, there should be even more Pride events throughout <laughs> the year for better visibility. Jack on Facebook says, Pride Month is an American construct. We need to remember where British LGBT experience and history differs from the USA. We had Wolfenden, the Wolfenden Report, and campaigning for law reform in the 1960s. We had at least partial decriminalisation before Stonewall, the Stonewall riots. And after these, we had the Gay Liberation Front, but we also had the Campaign for Homosexual Equality, who were the successor of the campaign organisation of the 1960s. So we do have a very different history and a very different culture, but... Paul, do you think there is any point us trying to resist the US model taking hold here when we live in such a digital world and culture? I just think let's look at what we're importing. A whole month of celebrations. I mean, it's not a bad <laughs> import, is it? And if we can adapt that to reflect our own British culture and our own British history, then, then you know, that's great. And it comes back to what we were saying earlier about it's a sin and the way that that shocked a lot of us in terms of what the general knowledge was amongst the population about the HIV AIDS epidemic. Um, I just think there's so much more educating to be done out there. And, and, the, and the more events and the longer they are, the better, in my view. Um, I completely agree. Um, we've, but we have also talked about um, visibility and protest. And um, is there an argument, do you think, Jody, that... Um, if we are protesting, then um, spreading ourselves too thin, we di dilute the message. I just don't think that we are diluting the message by doing that. And I think what you said uh, before about the comment that, that you had, that you had, Paul, about um, people saying, oh, well, it's a, it's a whole month, I'm sick of hearing it, or, or the comments that you've had saying there's too many days, is that really going to win the straight people over? That's not the real reason that the people making those comments are saying it. You know, they're not. They don't really. It's not. That you think, oh, well, if we put it all in one month, then then these particular homophobic people would come round. They're just choosing something to post their their bigotry about. I think. So yeah, um, I agree. But actually, in in the sense of often there being a celebratory element to a lot of these events now, in particular Pride, um, I have heard people say. Um, but why do you need Pride anymore when you're just having these celebrations all year? Um, so do you think we are possibly losing sight of the protest element and um, the different aims that are going on? What do you think, Sue? I mean, we always talk about visibility now as being visibility celebration, uh, becoming coming more to the fore. Well, I think there's two things here. And, and, and I'm just looking at the Outing the Past um, website. We've now got... We had 17 hubs who now wanted to show LGBT history. Places like the Royal Museum in Greenwich, the Bolton Library, the Derby Museum, the Shakespeare's Birthplace Trust, Suffolk Archives, the Higgins Bedford, the, you know, the LSE London. Those places until LGBT History Month started were not that interested in showing LGBT history or acquiring it or looking at their own archives or museum and discovering what they had. 
Lots of other people have jumped on that. I mean, Dan Vaux has done brilliant work with the Victorian Albert and other museums and Sasha Coward, who you had on last week. They have all utilized what LGBT History Month started and got people fascinated and interested and actually recognizing that there is such a thing as LGBT history which is crucial, which enables us all to discover who we are and also to educate the public. But the protest element of pride is crucial. And I would suggest that we had lost that. So a lot of the prides that, that we, um, that uh, the main prides are, have moved into a place where they've talked, where the commercial people have taken over and the protest has been lost. Hence the need for us to have a, a pride, which Peter Tattle is doing on, on the 28th of July very important and crucial and right now we have a lot to protest about we've got a very right-wing government who is actually um, disenabling a lot of the rights that we have so strongly fought for so protest to me is incredibly important dean on twitter says on this subject we need to define celebration visibility protest we need to define them to make real change Ramel on twitter says i think it's time we redefined success and stopped talking about visibility visibility alone won't solve some of the issues our communities face i think we've built a lot on the premise of visibility and it creates problems within itself not everyone needs or wants visibility and when we overemphasize its necessity we settle for what is essentially the bare minimum jody pride as protest um, is that being lost amongst all these visibility and awareness days and weeks? Yeah, I think that that's a really, I think it's a really interesting point. I think when I've been to Pride and I've taken my family or I've been before I had a family, to be quite honest, I've been and, and had a party, um, really, if I really honestly. But I think it should be a protest. And I think especially now at the moment, as, as you and Sue said earlier, there's a huge amount to protest about, especially for the trans community. And I think, but I feel like as somebody who is not necessarily a full-time activist. I feel like I am doing activism with my children's book and getting that into schools and into parents' hands as much as possible. Honestly, I feel like, well, actually, I'd love to know more about what can I do to make Pride more of a protest and to help add my voice to that. Okay, right, listen to this. This is uh, another listener comment. I'm going to put to you, Paul, since you're our newsman. Mark on Twitter says, Pride season has become... Pride season. So that's the whole kind of physical Pride events that we traditionally have in this country usually from May till the autumn. Pride season has become less and less about politics and this month, this Pride month in the UK, has been utterly dreadful in terms of rising attacks, weekly transphobia in the newspapers, court cases, homophobia in by-elections, LGBTQ plus related charities being delegitimised, etc. I think rather than talk about more or less events, we need to talk about, we need to think about what we do with this visibility. How do we use it for political ends? How do we maintain inclusivity of the entire community when that's also being challenged? Paul, this is a big one. What do you think about that? Yeah, that hits two things for me. One is this idea that as a community we have got to stick together. And one thing that completely breaks my heart is the divisiveness in our community at the moment. And I mean, you should never use social media as a gauge for anything, but the amount of abuse that I see on my timeline, particularly around trans people, is just so disheartening. And I think there's so much heat in that debate that we need to take 
out. Um, uh, and so I would love to see us as a community come together and to have a really adult conversation about some of those things. And the second thing is about visibility and protest. And I completely respect what everyone's saying here today. But for me, what I take from Pride is that actually visibility and protest are very complementary because you can't have a very good protest unless you're visible. Um, and I think every Pride has a bit of a different flavour. I remember going out on the uh, on the, the march, as it used to be called now. It's a bit more of a sort of a, a float <laughs> parade. parade. Yeah. yeah. Um, just after the Orlando attacks. Do you remember the Orlando attack in Florida? Where, oh, where, Pulse Nightclub. Yeah, Pulse Nightclub, absolutely. And for me, that felt like a really political moment, actually, because there were lots of people out that day who felt hugely moved by the attacks that had just taken place a few days before. And it felt like a big global message saying, you know, we will not stand for this. We are here. We will be seen and we will not stand for violence against us. So that felt like a political moment, even though it was a parade, even though we were all there dancing and singing and shouting. So for me, I don't think you can separate out visibility and protest. But I do respect that some people feel as though maybe we are more of about visibility and having a party and less about actually what is it we're trying to say here what, what's the messaging around this and I think also it pride as it is at the moment often gives too much of an opportunity for corporate entities to just stick some rainbows on and not actually and, and think right well there the job is done and definitely the same for government as well um, without actually changing policies whether it's policies for the people that are working in the company or the policies for the government it can almost be a shortcut get out clause that allows them to kind of get round actual action I think sometimes. Okay that's interesting Sue I want to put this to you so Jodie's points that um, the pride movement has become too corporate do you think we have so many different days for different purposes because pride isn't being diverse enough and it isn't fulfilling its purpose. Is that the point? You're nodding. Well, yes. I mean, when we set up LGBT History Month, we set it up specifically for visibility. And I, I find it interesting that that person says what they said. Um, when I do talks and when I meet with groups of people, I always ask, put your hands up if you heard something positive in school. And it shocks me how few hands go up, even now. Um, so, you know, we have a long ways to go for people to actually recognize LGBT people's existence in schools. And it's one of the things that after we set up LGBT History Month, we then set up another website called The Classroom so that we weren't just in one month, February, but we actually gave teachers a whole plethora of lessons which usualize LGBT across the curriculum. So in a maths lesson or an English lesson, a history lesson, a geography lesson, LGBT concepts are just dropped in. We don't we don't suggest you do a gay lesson, but you usualize us. And I coined the word usual because I think normal has got massive problems. Yes. So usualizing LGBT people so that and the whole point of doing this work is to challenge the homophobia in schools. I tell you if people what, people are more educated, they're less prejudiced. I tell you what, talking about all these different events and initiatives, it takes a lot of effort to just usualize our existence, doesn't it? <laughs> Flipping out. It does. Um, right, so I want to go back to something Paul was saying because I remember being on that Pride March, as I still call it, as you do, rather than Parade, which shows our age. Um, and just after the Pulse nightclub attack in Orlando, there was a different, um, there was a different atmosphere, and there was a more of an emotional charge. And I also, um, so I was, what I was going to say was, it's a shame that it takes persecution a reminder of persecution and bigotry to shock us 
into remembering the protest element of Pride. Um, but then I actually, I was going to say that, and then I thought, the other time I remember when we'd just um, been given equal marriage in this country, literally a couple of days before Pride in London. And I remember going on that march um, and feeling a different atmosphere. What's been your, so you say, Jody, your um, participation in Pride is predominantly being celebratory. Do you think it's a shame that it takes a flash of persecution to remind us of? I, I think it's, I did, I did say that about it being celebratory and I have always seen it whenever I've marched or just gone to the parade or gone to the, the parade or the march as, as a spectator, a wonderful day that I've thoroughly enjoyed. But talking about this is really making me remember the first time that I marched and I came out when I was 18 it was a long time ago I was very lucky and didn't have haven't had any bad reaction to it from anyone in my family or friends it was a very very straightforward situation for which I'm very grateful and aware that I'm privileged but when I went on that march I felt so strong I felt proud I loved seeing the older people looking out the windows and waving their flags. I felt so much like I was part of something. And it did feel, it maybe didn't feel political in the sense with a capital P, but it did feel political in the sense of a small P. And it really gave me a sense of belonging and it felt really wonderful. And that was a fantastic experience. Well, and also... But we have to think, who is it for, in a sense? And why do we have to have Black Pride? And I think we have to have Black Pride because we weren't being inclusive enough. Mm, yes, absolutely. So this coming weekend, we've got Black Pride coming up digitally, alas, obviously, because of the whole process. So we've got the digital Black Pride, and then we'll have Peter's, Peter Tatchell's Pride, which which hopefully will go back to the march. And we need them all, I would suggest. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yes. Can I, can I just say one thing, actually, just talking about LGBTQ plus history, and I'm not trying to do down the importance of celebration. I, you could actually argue that in respect to the queer trailblazers of the past and the sacrifices they made to give us a better existence, we should mark that with a celebration. You know, actually, they, they, they're not... I, I know that the mix isn't always right, but um, these things aren't always divorced and, and, you know, they don't work against each other. Paul, you wanted to say something? Yeah, I, I think you're right, Matt. And I think also we have to respect the fact that different people want to take different things from Pride. And, and those things might vary over the course of someone's lifetime. So I remember when I was young and I went to my first Pride as a, a, a teenager, the political element of it for me at that age where I was literally just coming to terms with my sexuality was too full on. I couldn't deal with it at that moment in my life. It felt too big. It felt too scary. I didn't want to face up to the fight that I was going to have to go through as a gay man. I just wanted to go and meet some other like-minded people and maybe find a boyfriend or something in the crowd, you know? <laughs> it was as simple as that for me. I just wanted to belong. Um, and as I've got older, <laughs> a lot older, uh, the party element for me is far less important now and for me it is much more about a political statement and much more about feeling as though we're marching together as one community and having our voice heard. So I think we've just got to respect that people want different things for Pride and as long as we're providing all of those things across all of these events, I think we're, we're, we're getting it right. Yes, and can I also just say in terms of all the different elements that make up Pride, Pride Month, all our celebrations, it's easy sometimes to just be blanket dismissive of corporate um, branding and initiatives. But I've also noticed that some of these things get lots of traction on social media. I mean, the American tradition of Pride Month 
it really does um, increase engagement on social media. Yes, only for a month. But, um, you know, in terms of mainstream allies, straight allies from mainstream society, it's it's an, an opportunity for them to engage, isn't it, Sue? Do you not think? I mean, it does yeah, have Yeah, it's a... an open door. Yes. And I think, and what's been very interesting for me this year is that the, the corporates have been much more interested in LGBT History Month this year, I think because we have been digital. Um, and I think that is very important. And I think one of the things that we have been able to do is begin to actually ask them, OK, what are you doing differently? You want to, you want us to come along and talk about history or you want us to mark LGBT History Month. That's grand. But what are you doing as a company to actually look after your LGBT employees and, and as a service provider? And we can ask those questions. And we do. And we follow up afterwards to find out what, what what's going down. So I think it, there are so many different ways in. To, to challenge and to protest. And I think, you know, we're a diverse community, massively diverse. So we need diverse ways to do it. Okay, Jodie, we're about to wrap up. Give us your closing comments. You were nodding very enthusiastically during um, Sue's comments there. Oh, well, I just thought that was really exactly what I was saying before about making sure that if a corporate body want especially if they're wanting to sell a product with a rainbow that we are asking them what are you doing about it it's wonderful that it's an open door but they do need to also be doing something so i was just nodding because i felt like sue was putting <laughs> very eloquently what i was trying to say earlier and paul just to bring this discussion to a close to a close do you think we are getting better at all this and do you think in the future um we're gonna get even better yeah, I think so. And I think if you look at the way people are drawn into Pride celebrations now and events um, in a way that they just weren't before. I mean, the straight community, in my experience, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, didn't really get involved. Whereas now you, f you, you feel them being pulled towards it. And when you go on the march or the parade or whatever you want to call it, you do see them lying in the streets. And they're far, it's a far more diverse crowd now, I think, than it has ever been. This is the Virgin Radio Pridecast. And now I'm going to be having a little chat with Jodie Lancet-Grant. I want you to tell us about, you've mentioned a few times, The Pirate Mums, your picture book, which is getting amazing reviews and reader responses. You've touched on it a couple of times, but what can our listeners expect in terms of story? So The Pirate Mums is about a little boy called Billy who just wishes that his family could be a little bit more like other people's. And as Paul mentioned, at first the reader will assume that that's because he's got two mums. The illustrator Lydia Corrie has drawn these wonderful, warm family portraits on the opening pages. But as the story unfolds, we learn that it's actually because they're pirates. So they wear crazy pirate clothes. They've got a rude, bad-tempered parrot called Birdbrain as a pet and they've decorated their whole house to look like a ship. So when they are that when Billy's teacher asks for volunteers to come our uh, parent volunteers to come on a school trip to the seaside with a boat trip included, they're super excited. Obviously they love boats. But Billy is totally horrified and he makes them promise to be normal just for the day after they insist on coming and he can't change their minds. But when the boat gets into trouble, it turns out that what they need is some people with nautical knowledge. And so the fact that they're pirates is what saves the day. Oh, and that brilliant. kind of teaches Billy that it's what makes us different, that makes us special. And I particularly chose pirates because I wanted something that was slightly fantastical. I wanted the thing that made the family different to be something that was so kind of random that anybody could relate to it. 
I didn't want it only to be for children who have two mums or two dads. It could be for anyone who feels different in any way at all. So, I don't know, maybe they eat different food at home to their friends, or their parents speak a different language at home. There are so many ways that as we're growing up, we might feel different. And I'm hoping that the book and the story will resonate with people who feel different for any way. Well, and that's interesting, actually, because um, I'd love to know what you think about what's what's the key to getting hefty issues into a children's book that has to be accessible and fun is it you obviously don't want it to be too worthy or issue led um i'm imagining you've you considered this a lot do you have to get the issues in by stealth almost or i think you just have to start with a great story that's what i set out to do i think most picture books do have some sort of a moral and the best ones are the ones that make you feel warm while you're reading that but really don't make you feel like you're being talked down to or taught something i think the story and the adventure has to come first but if part of what I mean in any story people learn something whether it's an adult fiction book or a children's one the characters change and learn something so if you can make them learn something that is going to be uh, teaching them something good about the world whilst having a great time on the story all the better although interestingly I would assume that the you mentioned all children's picture books have a moral in the story I obviously write novels for grown-ups there's you know the education that element is higher in the mix for you. I mean, presumably when everything that children do at the age that they're reading or being read a picture book, teaches them something it's all about education isn't it life yeah absolutely and you mentioned earlier julian is a mermaid so very little happens in that book it's you know it's just picked and that is really about visibility about this little boy who wants to dress like a girl you don't you don't really get any more knowledge into what whether he thinks he's a girl or whether he thinks he's a boy you just get these beautiful pictures so sometimes just by having those stories and those characters on the page that does the teaching for us as well Okay, so you were obviously onto a winner with pirates right at the beginning yeah. of this book because everybody loves pirates. Um, what are you going to do for the next book? There what? is going to be a book too, isn't there? There is. So I've got another book coming out in May next year, um, at late May in time for Pride. Again, Pride Month, as we've been discussing. Yeah, so it's um, interesting, actually. It's quite useful for, I found, one of the things we didn't talk about then is Pride Month is quite good for promoting things like books. All bookshops do a Pride Month yeah. promotion. It's... it's it's absolutely essential. I genuinely felt yesterday when it was the, the end of Pride Month, oh, well, that's a lot of my window for promotion over. Yeah. And that is why, as we were talking about earlier, we do need all of these different days because otherwise people only want to cover things and talk about things in that month. But it's a wonderful opportunity for bookshops to bring these titles together and for journalists to talk about them as well. But yes, yeah, so next um, I have a book coming in which is going to have a little girl with two dads, but a totally different story it's not pirates it's something a little bit more magical we haven't revealed what it is yet so you'll, you'll have to watch this space but we'll be saying what it is very soon but it's interesting you're claiming that space of um it's not just about writing great stories you're you're the two books you're doing so far they have that element in of increasing representation for lgbtq plus families yeah and i will always do that i want to continue writing and you know most children's books 
the parents aren't actually in them very much. In the second book, the parents are in the story quite a lot less than the pirate mums are in this story. They're at the beginning, they're in the middle, at the end. But the little girl goes on an event, on an adventure and then she comes and tells her parents about it and they help her when she has a problem. And that's the setup you get in most children's books, really. So it really doesn't matter. It's very easy to make them two mums or two dads. And so why not do it? Well, I completely agree. Why would you not? I know, I know. Anyway, that's brilliant. We love it all. We'll look forward to book two. Obviously, it's, been, it's coming out for Pride Month. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. My brilliant panel, Paul Brand and Jodie Lancet-Grant, are still here. And now we're going to be talking about kink at Pride. So the question is, do kink and fetish enthusiasts still have a place in Pride parades? It's a subject that's been around for several years. Fetishists have always had some kind of presence at Pride. This is very important. We've all seen the nipple clamps, leather, gimp masks, harnesses, whips and chains, but what do we think of them? I'm not going to give this subject too much introduction as I don't want to be accused of leading anyone. What I want to do instead is bring straight in our new expert guest who is Matt Spike. He's a fetish photographer and filmmaker and self-confessed kinkster. Matt, welcome to the show. Hello, thank you. Can you nice. tell us, have you, have you taken part in Pride Parades before? Absolutely. I've taken part in every Pride Parade since 94. That's a as boy. A, yeah. As a kinkster too. Fantastic. So have you encountered any resistance to your presence in these parades as a kinkster? I mean, I was at the Trans Pride rally just this last Saturday in London. I was walking down there with five leather men and we walked along the Mall towards Buckingham Palace. And uh, about four or five guys looked a bit like England supporters, if you ask me. As they passed us, they thought it was appropriate to go, Ugh, gross, in, right in our faces, which, um, you know, uh, as experienced kinksters we've seen before, and we knew how to react to that, which was basically to completely ignore them. In actual fact, it probably re uh, reinforced our self-belief. But yeah, oh, totally. I mean, that constant constant resistance um can i ask so these guys who look like england supporters were they straight people watching rather than participants i think they were um people on a staycation in london who just basically forgotten that london is a place for self-expression and it was a trans pride rally and i think it was just general abuse to be honest with you but like i said we're used to it well, Pride is supposed to be a place for self-expression. We've been talking a lot on today's show so far about Pride being about diversity, inclusivity. So, you know, how does that make you? Presumably you felt like they were trying to exclude you. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Um, and um, it's because I, I, the way I dress myself in my kink gear doesn't really fit in with this heteronormative idea of what gays should be like or queer people should be like in the 21st century. Um, so, like I say, I'm really, really used to it. And uh, it, it's, it's water off a duck's back. But what really concerns me is uh, uh, new people coming into the scene, you know, um, just finding themselves. I mean, it's just such a lot, lot of opposition and it seems to be getting worse. Well, interestingly as well, the opposition seems to centre around the argument that fetish can put off straight people and families is always mentioned. Um, the kind of people um, that we need to win over and keep on side, this is their argument that I'm putting to you. You're nodding, you've heard it before. 
Oh, absolutely, a hundred, hundred times. But can we? Can I just say, um, it's it's not about them. It's about us, actually. Um, that's why the whole thing happened. That's why we have pride because actually we're the gay people, we're the queer people. They're not. They don't get to call the agenda. They're not queer. That's how I feel. Brilliant. I love it. And not just do I love it. One of our panelists, Jody, is desperate to say something. So I'm going to bring her in now. Hi. Hello. Hi. So I think this is such an interesting discussion. Um. I know that there's been discussion about banning kinksters and fetishists from Pride and I would feel extremely uncomfortable about the idea of banning anyone from Pride. This is supposed to be something that includes all parts of our community. But what I think is really interesting is what happens when does one part of the community being there effectively ban another? So Matt was just talking before about families, they're straight, that's not us. But what about families like mine? I'm, I, have a, I have a wife and two six-year-olds and I would feel perhaps, to be honest, I actually don't really care, but I could imagine that people would feel very, we, we could feel uncomfortable about bringing a six-year-old to Pride and seeing some of that because it is very sexual. So I'm really interested to ask Matt, do you feel happy about a six-year-old seeing you in that get-up? And that's, it's not supposed to be an antagonistic comment. I'm just genuinely really interested. Yes, can I just say, Matt, before you answer this comment, we're all in this together and we're all one big family. What do you think about this um, reservation? Um, I think it's a little unfounded. I think it's. I think that uh, with respect, um, she she needs to think a little bit more deeply than that. Uh, for a start, not all kink outfits necessarily are displaying or you know um, offensive in some way. A lot of it is quite tongue in tongue tongue in cheek. I'd also question the idea as as whether a pride festival is really the place for a six year old. I mean, it's an adult expression of sexuality and therefore adult attitudes would be expected to prevail. Um, so I, I just feel a little bit like there's some kind of judgment there, which I don't really agree with. I think that if you were to look at the situation and look at the look at the the representation of kink at pride more closely, you'd find actually that it's um, uh, in actual fact, you know, it's it, the, the think of the children argument has been used and badly recycled for years against certain de, uh, denominations that conservative people use against so-called degenerates and gay people, trans people, sexually freed society. This all goes against these backward notions of sanitization, as far as I'm concerned. Okay, pause there for a minute. I just want to bring in Paul, our other panelist, who is a recent gay dad. So we were talking earlier in the show about how he's getting his head around what it's going to be like having a same-sex parented family. Um, what do you think, Paul, about taking your son to Pride in the future? Would you be happy for him to be around fetishists in the parade. Yeah, I, I have so much sympathy with what Matt's saying. I was a bit taken aback when he said that children shouldn't be at Pride because that almost feels like he's treating children the way that people are treating fetishists. Uh, I don't. I actually, I, I would, I'd like to say I didn't say that children should be banned from Pride. Just but continue. Sorry. Sorry. No, I thought I thought what you said there, Matt, was you know you'd question whether a six-year-old should be at Pride that it was an adult celebration. Well, I think I think it's a celebration for mature minds, absolutely. And I'm 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 sort of not saying that children shouldn't be there, but at the same time, you know, you have to sort of make a kind of sort of parental judgment here, and uh, you know, not 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 freak out. I, I, actually, what I was saying more more 
more more closely was that the situation needs to be looked into a little deeper than just I can't take my kids to this because there's kingsters there. It's it's very nuanced. All it's right, all right. So can I can I just say something to take the heat out of this? Um, we want to bring everyone together every time every single week on this show whatever topic we discuss people say pride's for everybody it's about inclusivity diversity so paul can you think of a way of embracing the fetishist community and making pride family friendly i just think pride is such a massive event that we just got to be live and let live and you know often with pride you have different sections of the parade you don't have to take your child necessarily to every section if you really feel that strongly about it and equally if there's some kind of you know kid section to the parade the the kinksters don't necessarily have to mix with the kids if they don't want to so for me i just think there's absolutely no practical way of saying to anyone that you can't come to pride i mean even if someone really did want to ban matt from going to pride in whatever he wants to wear where do you draw the line you know are you allowed to go in a vest are you allowed to go in a bikini are you allowed to wear a tank top i mean it's just absolutely impractical to say that these are the rules about what you can and can't wear to pride it's just not going to work well absolutely on that point can i just bring in a listener comment that we had on twitter from english Leathermaster who said Define kink. Leather? What about on motorbikes? Rubber? What about on firefighters? Bums on show? So no go-go boys with glitter on floats? The rainbow defines a range of sexualities, genders and interests and kink must be there. Having said that, so what do we think of the argument that kink at pride gives ammunition to the right, to the, to the bigots who say we're not suitable to be around children. Because Matt, you didn't hear this, but at the beginning of our show, we talked about the need for LGBTQ plus representation in children's books and the history of the um, idea that we're not suitable to be around children. So we've been debating that. Jody, what do you think about um, kink at Pride and whether it gives ammunition to the bigots who say we're not suitable to be around children. I think that's that is really interesting and of course and I think that kink I actually think that kink does have a place at pride but like um but like Paul said I think there can be different sections so that everybody can be welcome. I also felt a bit taken aback by Matt. I felt implying that my family would maybe not be so welcome at his version of pride and I really don't like that and that's where I think the only problem lies in this but I think that it needs to be about conversation and about communication there's wonderful family areas at pride my children think that pride is like a, a holiday that we celebrate that somebody Jewish might celebrate Hanukkah that not everybody gets to celebrate but they get to celebrate it and they love it and they love seeing other families like ours and I think that's really important we did actually accidentally um, end up marching with fetishists in the first pride that I went when we had to we left the family section and um, had to go and change one of the the girls nappies and the friendly policeman let us back in and we marched for a while before realizing we were the only people pushing a double buggy and the rest of it was uh, men being led along and leads we thought it was really funny i'm certainly not saying that kink doesn't have a place at pride but i also would like there to be uh, just just so that people would know where in the where in the march it's coming so that parents do have the opportunity to still bring their children and i certainly wouldn't want to police what anybody wears or how anybody felt that they can express themselves because all of these parts of the community are really important okay matt i want to come back to you but before i do lee on twitter says just picking up on something jody said the cutest thing i ever saw at a pride parade was the pops high-fiving the little kids as they went past pride should be to celebrate all aspects 
works of LGBTQIA not just what straight people find acceptable. It ain't a Disney parade. I did wonder, though, how the kids' parents explained it. So what do you think, um, Matt, about the idea of some kind of separation or separate areas, or do you think that wouldn't work? Well, firstly, can I just say that it's really interesting what we're talking about education of children in relation to sort of gay kingsters. But I think the biggest amount of education that goes towards children uh, in our society probably comes from the kind of straight people who espouse films like Fifty Shades of Grey, which I can um, and assure you has probably been seen by more uh, parents and more kids than any pride display. Um, but it's also this definition of family. I mean, you know, are we just forgetting conveniently that a lot of families are completely dysfunctional and that having left terrible families when you're growing up, a lot of people then form chosen family uh, later on, often after having found themselves, you know, uh, having discovered themselves. Um, I find this uh, defense of the word family, having come from a quite a broken family myself, quite questionable. Um, I'd also like to say that, um, you know, there are corporations sponsoring this event, there are police at the event. I think that it's really scare tactics and, you know, uh, every bit as much like all the homophobia I've been seeing all these well, years. Well, um, can I just say, I un totally understand that the word family can be triggering. We've often had thrown in our faces family values as something which um, we stand against. But there are lots of people within our community or family who... Um, have chosen to start families, biological families of their own. Um, how could you tell us, is there a way of including everyone together? Um, I don't know if it's separate areas, but is there a way of doing it that doesn't involve trying to silence the fetishists or imply that what they're doing is somehow wrong? Could you tell us about the San Francisco tradition with the Folsom Street Fair. I know that um, that's highly regulated and children aren't allowed, but I'm pretty sure that fetishists are also in San Francisco Pride, aren't they? Oh, absolutely. But I think there's a massive difference between the two. But yeah, Can I mean- Can you tell you us, know... would, you mind, would you mind outlining the difference for our listeners? Hi, sorry, random thing. Hello. Uh, we're in a studio now. We're just working along. And I just thought I would jump in there because I've done a lot of work with Folsom before. Oh, hello. Um, sorry. Hello. Who are you? Nice to meet you. Sorry, hello. Um, I am hello, I'm Tish, and we are all working with this uh, group. I'm very good friends with Matt. I've assisted on some of their shoots, and I've just kind of been here helping him with more admin-y type things. Fantastic. Uh, Great to meet you, Tish. Tell us what you think about hello. Folsom. What is the experience at Folsom? What do they do in terms well, with just this idea of separation and so Folsom specifically is a sex event. It's it's kind of its bread and butter. It is literally for people to express sexual definitions. Um the difference between Folsom and Pride, however, is Pride is a more encompassing thing. Pride comes from more historical roots and more political roots. And it's about a means of celebration, while Folsom is a little bit more about actually practicing. So that's a lot more educational on specific topics. That's 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 completely true. Yeah, I mean, Folsom is is um, Folsom is not necessarily a very political event. It's uh, it, it, it's 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 quite a hookup event. Whereas Pride is is much more than that. It's about a celebration of of who we are politically and culturally. Okay, I've got another question for you, and then we're going to have a little pause for some music. Um, 
One objection that has been raised on social media, kinks, fetishes and BDSM are enjoyed by people of all sexualities. Are gay people with kinks any more oppressed or disapproved of than straight people with kinks? You mentioned yourself, Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh, oh, I, I mean, I, I just I just think that, you know, it's, it's the usual story, isn't it? Because it's because it's straight kink, it's fine because it's gay kink, it's therefore suspects. I, I, that's why I fundamentally believe that all this comes down to good old homophobia again in some form or other sanitization of pride's essentially quite radical roots. So there is an argument if kink becomes too big a focus, would we lose the involvement of big corporations and organisations who are keen to show off their LGBT friendliness or credentials? Do we need them? What do you think, Matt? Absolutely, we need them, 100%. No, sorry, no, I'm joking. No, of course we don't need them. Absolutely not needed whatsoever. So are you fine if we lose them? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They just, want, they, they just want to sell money. That's all they want to do. Let's not pretend they've got real interests at heart. It's all about the bottom line. Okay, I right. Mean, you know, there, was, there, was, there was, kind of sorry, but there was quite a lot of non-involvement of corporatism and money at the Trans Pride rally uh, this past Saturday in London. And it was very refreshing, let me tell you. Okay, right. So I'm just going to go back to our panel. Paul Brand. So let's open up the subject of respectability politics. So um, if we are talking about toning down kink at Pride or separating them off, does it split us into the good, in inverted commas, respectable gays and the, in inverted commas, badly behaved gays? Um, is this something you worry about? I mean, the difficult thing for me is that... Um, on one hand, we only got some legal rights once we showed pe straight people that we could be just like them. And then on the other hand, in the early days of the struggle, when we made great strides, it was the sex workers and the radical drag queens front and centre. You know, it's a really difficult thing, isn't it, Paul? What are your thoughts on this? I think for me, it just keeps coming back to what we've discussed all through this show which is that you've got to take away from pride whatever it is you want to take away from pride and and look you know if i'm being really honest about it kink isn't something i personally identify with but i'm very happy for other people to identify with it and i just don't like the idea of anyone policing what pride is i don't want anyone to tell me what i can and can't take from pride whether i can or can't go on a corporate float for example or whether i can or can't bring my son to pride and I don't want anyone to tell Matt what he can and can't wear to Pride either. And we might not have the same idea of what Pride means, but that's okay. You don't, there's not one way to be gay. Okay, Jodie, is our identity about what we do in bed, who we love, who we're attracted to, and this, and this is gay and lesbian, I mean, transgender identity is obviously a whole different subject. What are we, what are we standing up and... How are we standing up and presenting ourselves at Pride? What's it all about for you? I mean, it's about all of those things. It's not about just it's not about just one of them. And I do agree with Paul in that you should people should take what they want to from Pride. In terms of the sanitization, I think there is absolutely no 
argument that pride should be made nice for corporate sponsors or be sanitised. Pride isn't nice. As we talked about earlier, pride is a, is a protest. My only concern is just making sure everybody Amen. feels included. And I feel that whilst with my books for children, I'm trying to make a space for LGBTQ plus life in the very heteronormative early years schools and literature and more space needs to be made for us there. I do also think that the LGBTQ plus community needs to make a little bit more space for the families within that community. I absolutely take Matt's point about chosen families. That is incredibly important. But we need to make space and respect them that understand as well that families like my family and Paul's new family are just as much a part of the community as anybody else. Matt, can I say something to you? Right at the beginning, you said to us that you'd heard a lot of resistance and objection to your presence as a fetishist at Pride. Can I tell you that when I put this on social media, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, the overwhelming majority of responses overwhelmingly was in favour of the presence of kink and fetish at Pride. That obviously isn't a particularly scientific sample. It's my personal <laughs> followers. So, you know, yeah. they're more likely to be LGBTQ+. But, um, you know, what do you think? What do you think of what Jody just said? Um, I, you know, I, I mean, some of it I, I, I thought was, you know, really, really agreeable. I mean, I think her idea of... Uh, I don't know if she just said it or, or earlier on in the debate about maybe there was a separate space within Pride for Kingsters. I'm wondering if maybe, you know, um, on that point, perhaps they, could, they should be some separate spaces for families at Pride yeah. as well. And there so is, there and, there, is. And, there is. There and there is, and that's is, great, yeah. and that's wonderful yeah. to have. And I definitely think that there, sh I'm, I definitely think that there should be a space at Pride for kink and fetishes. But I just think it's about communicating where that will be, even if it's just where in the march it will come, so that people can have a choice if they are there with young children who they may not feel that it's always appropriate to see that, or they maybe just don't want to have to explain it away in a way that they don't feel comfortable with that they have a choice to either spec watch that or to not watch it but i definitely don't think that it should be banned or that there isn't a place for it okay matt i want to put um, a couple of listener comments to you morris on twitter says i think there's a distinction to be made between mainstream and gentrification some of the no party people who are against kink at pride worry it isn't family friendly and detracts from lgbtq plus social acceptability but i wonder if rather it is concern about it detracting from a sanitized bourgeois approval what do you think about that? Oh, I totally agree with that one. Yeah, that's completely on my wavelength. Yeah, um, yeah. Okay, yeah. and listen to this other one, and I'll put it to you and Tish. Kevin on Twitter says, kink shaming is part of the conservative pushback against all LGBTQ plus people. First they came for the trans, then they came for the bi, then they came for the kink. Who'll speak up for the nice suburban bourgeois gays when they come for you? Oh, well, who cares? No, I'm joking. No, I think this is the thing. They hit the nail on the head that these same arguments, and this is no one here is saying these arguments. I think we're all on the same page that we're all believe that no one should be banned from pride. The problem is there are people out here that want to say what should and shouldn't be in. It goes back to respectability politics. The exact same think of the children arguments have been used for years now. It just changes the subjects, you know? Um, and I just wish that we could 
just let people celebrate Pride the way they need to, because I'll tell you what, people that say that kinksters don't belong at Pride need to do a lot more research about what the kink community has done for Pride. Okay, um, Matt, put your phone on silent. What was that all about? <laughs> I'm sorry, it's my He's laptop. He's got a special laptop. Oh, it's your special laptop. I'm not going to ask what you do on that special laptop. Tell us, <laughs> what do you think? Only I just do heteronormative things on my laptop. <laughs> well, on that, on that subject, to what extent are we different from the mainstream? To what extent have we had to compromise this in order to win mainstream recognition? Paul. What are you asking me here, Matt? So so what, <laughs> that we need to sort of fit into some kind of mould no, if we want to feel You know, there's been accepted. a drive towards showing that we are just like straight people and this has won us rights, there's no question. But to what extent does this drive towards showing we're all the same lose sight of the fact that in some ways we're fundamentally different and we don't want to you know we should still celebrate this yeah and i think i think things have evolved over the years i think for a long time the lgbt plus people who had the easiest time in life were those who tried to be heteronormative and fit in and be like everyone else but i think we're past that now actually as a society or at least a large chunk of society has passed that. We've got to the point now where we celebrate that difference and we actively look for, the, for those differences in people because we know that that diversity brings creativity and talent to the fore. So, you know, I, I think, again, it's just everyone takes something different from, from all of this and everyone lives their life in whatever way they want. I'll tell you what, though, you did bring up the point earlier, which was a really good point, about um, sometimes pride can be dominated by those who shout the loudest and... As you um, acknowledge, this is traditionally gay men. Um, and, you know, I was just going to say, in terms of kind of kink, it is a gay man thing. And I wonder what, say, lesbians would, you know, would lesbians think this is overpowering the image that's getting out there? I mean, I can see you looking at me, Matt. No, I mean, I Just certainly can't. Just because you're the lesbian in the Well, room. firstly, I'm not a lesbian, but I, mean, oh, I can't, I can't, certainly can't speak for all women on this top, on that topic. I think that there are so many different facets to being LGBTQ+. And whilst I think you're right that historically people who have fitted into that heteronormative ideal might have had an easier time, I think that that doesn't mean that therefore if you want... I, I, think, I think there should be no pressure on queer people to get married and have kids. If that's not something that you want to do, if you want to live a different sort of queer life, that's 100% fine. But equally, I think it's wonderful that we're, in, that we're in a world where if you do want to do that and you're a gay person or a queer person, you can. And you shouldn't be made to feel bad about that. You shouldn't be made to feel that you're betraying the LGBTQ plus community because that is what you want. And that's what, luckily, we're living in a time and a place where you're able to get it. And actually, that's a really interesting thing about starting a family is you do feel some rejection from some parts mm. of the community who feel as though you've gone down this heteronormative route, that you're a bit of a sellout, that maybe there's a bit of shame there and you can't quite handle that actually, you know, gay people aren't meant to have kids and you just need to get on with celebrating your life as part of the LGBT plus community. That's certainly something that I've felt from just a couple of people in my life who've sort of really questioned me, like, why do you want kids? Um, right, so I want to pick up on that point, but before I do, I just want to apologise to Jodie for saying lesbian. Could you just clarify how you are identified? I'm very sorry for doing that. So I always thought that I was bisexual, and then as the conversation has evolved, I would now identify as pansexual. Fantastic. Right, Matt and Tish, as you're both there, um, do you feel, we've been talking about respectability politics, 
the good gays and the bad gays. And was there a bit of opposition to you from you to the idea of the heteronormative gays? You know, Paul's saying he picks up on um, people thinking he's the enemy and putting onto him this idea of heteronormativity. So I don't think no one, anyone is saying that these people are the enemy, but I just want to go back to a point that was being made before, which was saying that, that we got our rights because we let straight people know that we're more like them. That is categorically not correct. We have never got our rights because we've tried to be more like straight people because that kind of says that straight people are the norm and that we have to emulate them. The reason we have our rights is because we have been loud about saying that why should our lives be any different to someone else's? Mm. Can I just um, say, actually, what I said was two things, just to correct you. I said that um, at the beginning of the fight it was a riot and trans people of colour, sex workers were right front and centre and it was yeah. about protest and struggle but there is definitely there is definitely an extent to which equal marriage for example, that may be a symbolic win and, and we may have different feelings about that but Ruth Bader Ginsburg said the Supreme Court judge when they handed down that judgement we are legalising equal marriage because we have all known gay neighbours, brothers, colleagues, we have seen that they are all like us. And that goes back to Harvey Milk's um, speech, come out, come out, wherever you are, we can change everything, whatever the exact wording was. So both things have happened. I wasn't mm -hmm. saying one to cancel out the other, but sorry, go on, just to go, go no, back to I, what you were saying. No, my, my point is that no one here is specifically saying it, but it's one of those ideals that I think gets ingrained a lot about kind yes. of the cooking. But anyway, I, I totally well, I think, agree. I totally yeah, I agree. Think, it's one of those things where we're kind of shouting into the ether because we know there are some conservatives out there that would love to police how all of us do what we do, you know? Well, um, I, mean, I imagine there's a lot of frustration uh, coming from your quarters at some of the things that have been said to you. This is the thing, like, I am, I'm a trans person and I'm a trans kinkster as well and the, I, I'm just going about my life. Turn your special laptop off, Matt. Well, no, Wait. don't take your laptop off or we'll lose you. Turn that <laughs> ring off. Go on, I'm, Tish. I'm sorry, these these kinksters are persistent. <laughs> well, can I just yeah. say, Tish, you made a really interesting point earlier. I'd love to pick up on it now. You said people have lost sight of the contribution kinksters have made to the fight for equality. Could you, yes. could you um, expand on that for our listeners? So the a lot of communities in the fetish a lot of fetish communities have long standing traditions. So most of this comes a lot from the, the leather community, for instance. During the AIDS crisis, a little bit in the UK, but mainly in the United States, um, when the government basically let gay people die, and the entire rest of the community was saying that we all basically deserve to die. It was the leather communities that banded together. The fetish communities would come together. They would bring people from the street. They'd help care for them if they got sick. They would raise money, and that's why a lot of traditions that we have within the fetish scene have expanded a lot of my fetish friends who are kind of um who are a bit on the scene longer they were the ones on panels fighting for our rights here so a lot of people see fetishists as oh they're just doing they're just showing everyone what they do in the bedroom on the streets um which is again fetish and kink is not always just about look we're having sex for instance i'm i work at a studio making fetish gear fetish gear features a very big part of my life and i love exploring that because i wouldn't be who i am without it so when it's kind of denumerated into just 
oh, they just want to show that they're getting their wits away. That's not exactly what we're doing here. And I just wish that we could explore that a little bit more at Pride. All right. Thank you very much for making that point. I very much appreciate it. I need to wrap up the discussion just to reiterate that everybody involved has been in favour of kink at Pride. I want to end with by reading out one comment from a listener on Twitter Guy says, shame is such a huge mental health issue in society, especially for LGBTQ plus people. Nobody should be made to feel ashamed of what they are and what they enjoy. So yes, pride should welcome all who wish to express themselves. The Sunday Roast with Matt Cain. Virgin Radio Pride. Now finally, Love Island has blasted back onto our screens this week. Have you been watching, guys? Have you been watching Joda? No, I'm not really a fan of Love Island. We've been, uh, throughout lockdown and since then, uh, it's been uh, RuPaul's Drag Race all the way fast, not to be stereotypical or anything. But yeah, we just finished uh, Drag Race Down Under the other night and thoroughly enjoyed it. But no, I feel like maybe I need to get on the Love Island bandwagon, but I haven't done yet. Well, it's interesting because I used to have two much younger lodgers in their 20s and they loved, they were both straight and they loved Love Island. So without even choosing to I'd take in a certain amount and of did you get into it night. did you become I obsessed quite, with it I didn't get obsessed with it but I did quite get into it I do have different reality TV favourites I am a bit obvious like you RuPaul's Drag Race but um, reality TV in general actually to make a serious point it has often been great for LGBT representation that's how we started by discussing that Paul do you have a favourite queer character from reality TV. Are you a fan of reality TV? Yeah, so my favourite queer character, and I actually told him this, which is really embarrassing, is Brian <laughs> Dowling from Big Brother because he won Big Brother just around the time that I was sort of coming of age. I must have been like early 20s or late teens. Um, and it was just so powerful to see a gay man win anything in life, you know, to see that you can have success as a gay man. Um, and the fact that he did that off the, pu- the back of a public vote, you know, just felt like a huge wave of acceptance. So although it was a fun show, it's only Big Brother, you know, it's, it's not life or death scenario. It had a huge impact on me. Um, and I was at a party about three years ago and I met him and I told him this and uh, he actually loved it. But uh, it was still quite embarrassing. Um, but we've been friends ever since then. And um, yeah, I just I think reality TV holds a mirror up to society and um, and really um, helps us to make huge leaps sometimes. Well, also, going back to a point, what have you made? I can't remember now. Right at the beginning when we were talking about representation in children's books, about whether we lead the culture and influence the culture or whether we need to catch up and reflect the culture. And I do get the impression that with reality TV, it influenced our culture. It's pushed attitudes in the right direction. Do you think, Jodie, you're nodding? Yeah, I do. And that's why I think it's a bit weird that Love Island is so straight. And what was the phrase? They said it was too logistically complicated or logistically difficult to have queer people on there. And I just think that is such a shame. And if you look at something like Strictly, having that same-sex couple dancing, I just thought it was just so wonderful to see um, when that great, happened. It was it? just, it felt so, like, like like you just said about, um, about Brian winning the vote. It just felt so life-affirming to have that there it was really wonderful and actually can I just say about Big Brother I know you say Paul it was a light show but it was actually billed initially as a social experiment yeah put all these different people in one enclosed space and see what happens and it wasn't I mean Brian Darling was brilliant I agree and I would probably fangirl over him if I met him at a party but there was also Anna 
the lesbian nun. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. She was yeah, brilliant, she was the first wasn't she? She was the first she series good. and in the final three. And do you remember when the trans woman, Nadia, Nadia. won with yeah. a public vote? Yes, I was actually at one of the eviction nights that year. I got some tickets for the eviction night and we loved Nadia, me and my friends, and we held a big sign um, in support <laughs> of her. But my God, when you look back at that now, how ahead of, ahead know, of the curve was that? Know. You know, she won Big Brother, right? I think she won. Yeah, yeah she, she won. won. Yeah, and... Um, and you just think that really, as a society, we're only just having a discussion now about um, trans issues. So they were kind of 15 years, 20 years ahead of the curve with what they were doing on Big Brother. I think Big Brother is quite special for that, though, because what Big Brother does is that because you're watching those people for such a long time, you have to get past just seeing them as a gay man, a trans woman, and you start to see their personalities. And that's what people are voting for them for. So actually, in that way, reality TV can do something really special because it can strip away a stereotype that you might have if you just hear someone on a 10 minute interview i think in years to come i suspect people will write phds and things on the influence of reality tv because actually we're just talking about well we started off talking about love island but um big brother is just one show and there's been so many of them and actually with love island i understand i can't remember what the producer's exact comments were whether he was talking about gay contestants or queer contestants i understand that if you're talking gay i.e exclusively same-sex attracted that makes it logistically difficult for who's going to couple up with who unless they're all same-sex attracted but you're right in terms of they could do interesting things with queer mm. um if you're talking pansexual you know or they could really do interesting things there couldn't they yeah a, a totally pansexual love island and you have no idea who's gonna end up with who whether the girls would be the, with the girls or the girls would be with the boys or the boys with the boys that I would probably watch although I, I would all, definitely watch it what so would I about? although I'm always gutted on naked attraction I've seen a couple which you know whatever we think of naked attraction there's been my boyfriend likes watching it there's been a couple of episodes where they've had somebody on who's been bi curious which I think is a term that came from Big Brother I can't remember who it was who was in who's described themselves as bi-curious and it caught on. But um, they've had a couple of contestants on Naked Attraction. They've described themselves as bi-curious. They've wanted to try it with the same sex for the first time. And then they've gone for somebody of the opposite sex. And I've always been really disappointed. Paul, which are your reality TV favourite shows? Have your, did you watch a lot during, oh, I suppose lockdown for you. You were carrying on working. Yeah, I didn't get a lot of TV time during lockdown because I, um, I was reporting on the news. But... Um... I I don't know. I've dipped into different things over the years. I had a I had a Towie phase for a few Ooh, years. Interesting. Yeah, I did because that was kind of scripted reality. Yeah, sort constructed of, reality. Yeah, constructed. That's right because it's not quite scripted, is it? Um, so that was an interesting genre. Um, what else did I love? Also, it was um, Towie's had queer people on, hasn't it? Absolutely. Bobby Norris uh, was has been there. I think the longest standing um, character on Towie. Um, uh, as a gay man so yeah I think they've made great strides as well and actually another constructed reality show made in Chelsea Ollie Locke who's also about to become a gay dad I think rather than just mm. become a gay yeah, dad yeah that's right yeah so it'd be interesting to see if that becomes a storyline um, but you're not going to watch Love Island Jodie no, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not really that, I don't think I've got the time to invest in Love Island. I, I didn't really watch Towie. I grew up in Essex and I think I thought it was a bit too close to, to my, to my childhood and my teen years for me to enjoy, but I loved Made in Chelsea. I watched the first few seasons of that and I, yeah, I don't know why. There was something about the escapism there that I thoroughly enjoyed. 
And RuPaul's Drag Race, Jodie mentioned, Paul, are you a fan? Big fan, big fan, yeah, yeah, I love RuPaul's Drag Race. I haven't actually seen the latest British series, so I've got that to look <gasps> oh, forward to. Oh, you've got such a treat yeah. in store. Yeah. I don't really like the American version, but the British one, um, I mean, I don't not like it, but I just think the British ones were just so good, and they really spoke to something that's really just at the heart of British queer culture, and in the in the most recent one, some of the conversations they have about being non-binary, it was just so fascinating to listen to, just yeah. really Brilliant. Actually, I agree with you though. We have so many conversations on the show about how to be diverse, how to be inclusive. They do it really well on Repulse yeah. Radio, don't they? You know, and I think, am I right in thinking there's another All Stars coming? I think so, yeah. I don't know when. Something Soon. to look forward to. On that note, that's about it for this week. Thanks very much to my guests, Paul Brand, Jodie Lancet-Grant, Sue Sanders, and our kinkster, Matt Spike, and his friend, Tish. I'll be back with a brand new panel and some brand new discussions at the same time next week. Drop me a line if you've enjoyed the show, if you want to show an experience or want to have your say. If you're looking for us on social media, we're on at Virgin Radio UK and I'm on at Matt Kane Writer. Or you can email us on pride at virginradio.co.uk. See you at the same time next Sunday.